Well, I always say that apart from knowing Polish politics, I always recommend that pundits should closely read the Polish constitution. On October 15, polls were called to the polls, no pun intended. The ruling Law and Justice Party, or Peace, came first with a plurality of ballots and seats, but, and it's a crucial but, well short of a parliamentary majority. As a result, after eight years of rule, Peace will likely be replaced by a large coalition that ranges from the left to the right, helmed by former Prime Minister Donald Tusk, of the right-of-centre civic platform. Hi, it's François from the Common Decency Podcast. It's so good to be back. Today, Jorge and I will cover the aftermath of the Polish elections and its implications on the rest of Europe. Are Poland's positions on Ukraine and NATO immutable? Is the country about to mend fences with the EU? And potentially, along the way, unfreeze 100 billion euro in post-COVID recovery funds currently withheld by Brussels over concerns on democratic backsliding. More importantly, will Donald Tusk's agenda be undermined by holdouts from the previous government across the civil service and state-controlled corporations? To unpack the meaning of Poland's result, we are honoured to have the consultant and veteran commentator of all things Polish, Marek Matrzek, back with us this week, along with Warsaw-based Belgian historian David Engels. As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on whatever platform you use and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show for Patreon to get access to a full episode where we talk more about the future of EU-Polish relations. I also wanted to take a moment to apologise for our belated start to the season. Jorge, Julian and myself We've all been dealing with personal and professional challenges. We just wanted to take time to make sure we didn't come back burnt out for a new season. But don't worry, we will flesh out what we have in store very soon, so please stay tuned. Now, on to the show. So, Poland has just gone through a major election where the ruling PIS party got the largest share of the votes, but is well short of a majority. This essentially all but guarantees that the ruling PIS party's days in government are numbered. Uh, Marek, maybe, can you walk us through in a few words what are the next steps before Poland gets a new government? And could the president slow the transition towards having a new prime minister? Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, well, I always say that apart from knowing Polish politics, I always recommend that pundits should closely read the Polish constitution because it's a very interesting document that lays out in quite a lot of detail the exact process that we're in right now. Is We're in untested waters because we've never had a situation where uh, the, the process of formation of government has gone beyond the first step of its creation after an election. In other words, what we have now is a constitutional requirement for a new government, obviously, 
to have a majority in parliament. Uh, and the constitution says that after the prime minister resigns on the first session of parliament, which will happen on Monday, um, the president has two weeks in which to nominate a new government, which then has a further two weeks to gain a vote of confidence. Now, everyone knows that the uh, losing, well, that's actually a, a moot point because law and justice would say they won the election, they got the plurality of votes, they got the yeah. most votes, they got the most seats. Uh, the opposition say, uh, as you posited in your question, uh, law and justice doesn't actually have a majority. Yeah. Uh, it has less than 200 seats in, out of the 231 you need for an absolute majority. No one wants to have a coalition with it. Uh, and therefore, the natural choice would have been for the president to nominate the leader of the opposition as the Donald Tusk, as the putative prime minister, and get him to get a vote of confidence. That's been uh, reversed. And Andrzej Duda, the Polish president, has decided that in the first attempt, first constitutional attempt, he will actually nominate or actually appoint Mr. Morawiecki, the current prime minister, as the new prime minister. And will say to him, you have two weeks in which to gain a vote of confidence. That won't happen, uh, of course. Uh, but it, it, all it does, it delays the next stage, which is in the constitution, which is the parliament has a chance to... Uh, nominate a prime minister and gain an absolute majority for that candidate. And on the current schedule, if you extend this process uh, to the limits, the constitutional limits, this process won't conclude until December the 11th. Um, so that's the current, uh, that's the current uh, timetable. The question is whether after this initial um, reversal by the president of the natural order of nominating a prime minister, whether that he will want to slow down the tradition transition. I suspect not. He will have made his gesture towards his law and justice party allies. And I don't think because he recognizes that he still has 18 months of cohabitation with the new government when it finally does arise, he wants to have a um, a working cohabitation, especially in the area of defense and security. So he won't want to spoil yeah. the party too much. But he's doing enough to show that he is a party loyalist and that he is uh, working, is at least giving law and justice the opportunity to, to try and form a government, which won't happen. But it allows him to present himself as someone who was loyal to the party right to the end. Hmm and uh, avoid any accusations that he uh, actually prevented a possible law and justice government being established. So there's a lot of things going on here, but that's broadly the scenario for the next few weeks. Wonderful. Well, uh, just taking a step back from some of these uh, procedural matters and sort of what's what's ahead in terms of the, the cabinet uh, formation, uh, uh, David, I want to take take us uh, take us one step back into sort of how this election was fought. Um, you know, there was sort of one of the main uh, media narratives that has emerged is that there was a whole lot of uh, fatigue with the peace government. Uh, but I think one of the issues we run into when we have when we're talking about these national conservative governments in Central Europe is that there. Uh, the uh, the conversation gets refracted through a European prism, and so the news that arrives to us in Europe tends to be tends to have a sort of a tinge of EU 
coloration. Uh, and so, for for instance, in this election, uh, in Western Europe, we in Western Europe heard a lot about, you know, uh, democratic backsliding in Poland, the independence of the judiciary. But I'd like for you to, to explain to us, you've been in Poland for a long while. What issues, what cleavages was this election really fought about? What were some of the main dividing lines between the government and the opposition in terms of the, uh, the, the things they were uh, debating? Yeah, thank you very much first for the invitation to speak uh, on your on your channel. Indeed, it is, has been now five years. I'm I'm here in Poland and observing Polish politics. Now I'm still very much uh, feel very much as a newcomer, as some form of tourist. But perhaps that that gives me also an outside vision on on the event. So so obviously there were of course a, a lot of of inner issues uh, of, of, of 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 inner politics. I mean, uh, we had of course the uh, debate on the uh, tightening of the abortion law uh, that uh, created a lot of uh, of trouble especially of course with uh, the female voters uh, we had uh, in the last second also uh, the uh, alleged visa scandal that has still not yet been resolved but uh, that suggested somehow that government authorities had sold uh, enormous numbers of uh, of working visas to migrants from africa um, so we had the issue with the wall to or the fence towards Belarus that uh, didn't seem uh, as uh, let's say tight as as it was uh, as as, as they, they 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 pretended. So there were a lot of inner issues, and of course there there is always some form of of fatigue. I mean we we live in democratic societies, and uh, it is only logical that after some some years in power, while the initial impetus slows down, uh, structures start to establish themselves. There's some form, of course, also of, of arrogance of power to which every political party, sooner or later, of course, becomes prone. So, of course, all that uh, can, 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 can explain to a certain extent what's happened. But I think it is not the principal explanation. The principal explanation, I think, is situated on the cultural level. We, for, for many decades, we heard uh, always the same it's the economy stupid but I think it is the uh, culture stupid to a certain degree and that is something which uh, peace unfortunately uh, missed during these eight years during these eight years they did not succeed in making this specific branch of conservatism attractive enough to people within Poland and without uh, and, and, and outside. Uh, when we start with the outside, we see that uh, Hungary, for example, made enormous effort in order to bring intellectuals towards to, to, to Budapest, to, to create English-speaking and, and other languages, uh, uh, media, uh, to, to um, translate uh, important speeches to try to influence also the, the public opinion outside of Hungary. Unfortunately in Poland there have only been very small initiatives and they came also quite late so they have not really managed to, to, to create a positive image of Polish conservatism outside of Poland. And the same is valid unfortunately for, for inside Poland. During these eight years uh, peace has not succeeded in creating a, let's say, large-scale, proper conservative medium. They only relied on their shares of power within uh, TVP and similar medias. 
Uh, and also they have not succeeded, unfortunately, in establishing any form of, uh, let's say, um, elite program in order to, to bring their message also to young people, to students, a little bit like uh, the uh, Hungarians have tried with, uh, with MCC. So somehow peace has not managed to break out of this uh, 60-plus uh, voter uh, cohort. Um, they, they, they have not managed to show that conservatism is not about old-fashioned values, uh, but rather that the, 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 the fight between conservatism on the one hand and progressivism on the other hand is a fight that uh, is, is there in human history for thousands of years and that will be there in the future, that we have two fundamental archetypes and that it is not about being outmoded but being about a certain choice of life and this specific brand of conservatism trying to explain that whatever your age you belong either to one or the other school uh, peace has not managed really to do that and I think that explains of course to a certain extent why uh, after these eight years uh, the, 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 the people have preferred a certain return to the normality in brackets uh, of uh, uh, of uh, doing the same like uh, most of the other Western European countries, uh, even more so as uh, and you already alluded to that the uh, media pressure, the political pressure from Brussels but also from Berlin has been enormous for all these years. So there has been a constant bombarding with um, negative media images that have been taken over, of course, by Polish media and vice versa, uh, with uh, a sanction. Uh, with uh, alleged scandals, which in the end, I think in the end, had the better of uh, the Polish population and explained why in the end uh, votes have turned out as they have turned out by now. And I think there is an important lesson uh, for all uh, conservative parties in the future to to insist even more than than before, not only on institutional or economic uh, uh, factors, but in 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 making conservatism attractive and showing its value even outside of time and space. So, Marek, I wanted to hear you on this, but also um, related to this question, could it also be that there is a larger decline in conservative values independently of what the uh, Peter has been doing in office. You know, we're seeing stories about the decline of the Catholic Church, which used to be perhaps the most important institution in Polish history, all of a sudden being challenged for its role in sex scandals, but more importantly, also its relationship to power. Is there kind of a larger decline in conservative institutions and values which le led up to the decline of the uh, Peace Party? Well, I think we need to put this uh, defeat in perspective because if you look at the raw numbers uh, of voters, because we had a very, very big turnout. We had a turnout of almost 75%, which is a historical high in Poland. It's extraordinarily high in Europe. But if you look at the absolute numbers of voters, law and justice by and large held on to its uh, vote from 2019 and especially 2015. Uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers with me, but they got about three or 400,000 votes less than they did in 2019. Um, and we're talking about the difference between about 6.7 and 7.1 million. I mean, what you had in this uh, election was two things really happened. On the one hand, that those lost half a million votes. And I think you can actually identify uh, two or three issues, not just during the campaign, which were obviously not to the law and justice's benefit, but they were sort of transitional 
campaign scandals, as you uh, uh, as you like, but more historical uh, decisions over the last two years. I would point to two. One is, uh, and this is a difficult thing for a conservative to say, but it was the uh, decision by the law and justice leadership to engineer through the Constitutional Tribunal about two, two and a half years ago, a total ban on abortion, uh, breaking the uh, what was a working compromise that had existed for the last uh, two or three decades over, over abortion rights, which were already restrictive in any case in the European context. And that lost a substantial part of, uh, well, lost a fair amount of the youth vote and women's vote. And secondly, uh, actually, something that could have easily been avoided, and I think had it been avoided, law and justice possibly could have won the election. And this was the decision um, uh, by the president uh, in the spring of this year to send to the Constitutional Tribunal, in other, in other words, not to sign immediately a compromise law that had gone through Parliament, gone through the Senate with the support of the government and the leadership of the Law and Justice Party on a compromise solution on judicial reform which had been negotiated with Ursula van der Leyen in Brussels and which would have opened up to a certain extent the flow of EU funds, which have been frozen for a very long time because of the purported rule of law, transgressions of the current of the previous government, and uh, which would have actually taken away from Donald Tusk and the opposition the accusation that Poland under law and justice was being isolated in Europe. There was a pol-exit planned that the our policies of the government were blocking EU funding. And this was a very, very strong campaign theme for Donald Tusk. Had the president simply signed off on the law, and I won't go into the arcane nuances as to why he didn't, uh, that law would have passed and law and justice could have run the campaign, uh, much like uh, on, a, on a Victor Orban message, which was like, we, we were tough, we were resolute. But in the end, the EU came to came to the party, gave us our money, and we're we're moving ahead. Those yeah. two things, I think, uh, uh, explain the, um, uh, the the loss of this half a million voters, which, given the uh, peculiarities of the Polish electoral system, translated into the failure to gain an absolute uh, 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 majority. I have to say also. Uh, I mentioned, did mention Viktor Orban. Um, the uh, campaign here in Poland of law and justice was also um, uh, helped, inverted commas, by advisors from Hungary. Uh, Viktor Orban asked his election uh, campaign specialists to come and advise uh, Jaroslav Kaczynski, and they did. And they advised on a very hard line, um, anti-Tusk, negative, uh, campaign, uh, very, uh, very uncreative in many ways. The, the idea was this was designed to mobilize the core vote of law and justice. What actually happened was that the um, vote of the opposition was uh, pumped up. Uh, it just mobilized uh, many voters uh, who were perhaps a little uh, amb ambivalent about voting to come out and vote, especially for the third way coalition which is sort of, you know, a law and justice light 
party. It's sort of a combination of classical liberals combined with rural peasants. And they garnered up some of the voters who uh, had been disaffected from Donald Tusk, but who were not um, able to bring themselves to vote for law and justice. So those are the sort of the basic reasons why um, what, what happened happened. So let's take a moment to take stock of eight years of peace rule. Um, what, what will be its legacy when people look back over that period of time and what will be some sore spots going forward? Starting with uh, David. Yeah, well, I think that there, there are many individual points on which peace has uh, really have a lot of successes. I mean, uh, during these eight years, the, the economy uh, has been faring extremely well, even during the uh, COVID uh, depression. So uh, in comparison with all the other, uh, especially Western European countries, the, the Polish economy is, is, is going extremely well. Uh, then, of course, there is the, the legacy of the uh, Ukrainian war uh, with the uh, taking over again of a, of a leading position in uh, European foreign policies and the, the resolute wish uh, to, to counteract uh, the, the Russian aggression. I think uh, um, peace has really shown an extraordinary uh, European leadership during that moment that will certainly be, uh, be remembered. So that is also very clear. Uh, also, we shouldn't forget that uh, thanks to the um, uh, the 500 and 800 Slotty Plus program uh, per child, uh, there has been at least an, an, an endeavor somehow to, to ease many of the burdens uh, on parents and to, to curb to a certain extent the the uh, natality. And that if, even though, unfortunately, we have seen during these last years that uh, natality is is falling down uh, worse than, than than at every other moment, uh, but uh, uh, in the end, uh, and I, I go back to my to my initial point, uh, it is um, it is a very difficult fight because what we see now is really the the fight between two two visions of the world between two two ideologies. On on, on the one hand, we have what we can uh, um, certainly term as the the vision of people anchored somewhere. Uh, and then, of course, the, the vision of people answered or, or anchored uh, anywhere. It is really a fight between conservatism and, uh, and uh, progressivism, between transcendentalism and uh, uh, materialism to a certain extent. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the pressure from outside is enormous. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching at uh, diverse universities throughout uh, Europe, also comprising Poland. And I can say that uh, the the main um, the main influence that is uh, acted upon young people uh, doesn't come anymore from from state TV, from journals, from uh, official uh, declarations or whatever. But it it seeps through the the, the smartphone. So there is a, a progress of cultural shift of cultural transformation for the worse. I would say uh, that is extremely strong, and it is very difficult for party that is uh, on the conservative side to counteract uh, this. And so I would say uh, that coming back to this question of the legacy of these eight years, I would say that peace has fought honorably during these eight years, uh, that they have managed to, to stop to a certain extent much of the advances of uh, 
what uh, Pope uh, John Paul II has his, his, uh, uh, once called the culture of death. So for, for eight years, this has to a certain degree been stopped. But uh, a real rollback, a real pushback uh, has not been uh, effected. Unfortunately, and uh, I think uh, uh, that is, of course, something that is very, very difficult for for any democratic um, uh, institution. Because in in the European media, especially in Germany, of course, we have heard for so many years that Poland had become a clerical fascist dictatorship, or uh, whatever they 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 found as words. But but in the end, uh, of course, uh, the, the the Polish government until now has been an extremely democratic government with many issues, with uh, a much less assured power base than, for example, Orbán's uh, government. And so they've tried with their means to to fight this evolution. But I would say that uh, in the end, uh, the success has been very mitigated and. Uh, uh, we couldn't expect much more on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, it is very tragical to see uh, this uh, this defeat in the end. And I think perhaps as a last point, uh, something we haven't yet spoken about, um, that is the result of the referendum that has taken place at the same time that the elections. And for me, I've said it very often to the media, the results of the referendum are even more interesting than the results of the election because we had 73% of participants I think in the in the general elections, but only about forty uh, in the uh, in the referendum. And this referendum was on crucial questions, uh, essentially, of course, the question of uh, are you um, in favor or against mass migration. And the fact that only out of these, um, so that we have seventy three percent of the uh, electorate that has been going to the elections, but only forty percent that have taken over the sheet of the uh, referendum in order even to answer that question shows, at least from my point of view, that uh, many Poles uh, have only a very superficial knowledge of the true uh, identity of the many challenges Europe is going through, and the, uh, uh, the possibility of expressing one's own opinion towards mass migration would be, I think, in France or in Germany or in Belgium, Something people would would literally uh, wait for hours only in order to be able to express themselves, in order to reject mass migration because they they know what it leads to. But in Poland, obviously, uh, this seems to be so far. This seems to be so unimaginable. It seems also for many to be just government propaganda. Uh, that in the end, the let's say more petty um, discomfort with peace and. The, 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 this, this idea that yes, well, perhaps we need to switch government because we don't like their, their faces anymore. Uh, let's say these these more uh, trivial uh, um, considerations obviously were more important than the the crucial choices they were offered to. And for me, that came as a real surprise, as a real shock. And I think that is very illustrative uh, of what is really going on here. Um, Marek, quick question on this. Um, we will go back on Ukraine itself, but kind of more generally on the legacy and maybe with a, a few words on the uh, controversies around the rule of law of the past mm. eight years. Well, I'm actually, I'm quite interested in just, just taking a moment just to carry on this this point. Uh, yep. Because, you know, what has law and justice uh, achieved? The referendum, and David is very right, it's something that's been underreported, but it's actually fascinating. When you drill down on the numbers, yes, 
there was only a 40% turnout for the referendum as opposed to uh, uh, 75% for the uh, for the election. But out of those who actually t voted in the referendum, 99% uh, effectively uh, supported the positions of the government. In absolute numbers, you're talking about an average of 10.5 million votes which were cast in line with the arguments of the government on sale of foreign ass assets to foreign investors, retirement age, uh, the barrier between Poland and Belarus, and uh, migration. Ten point, an average of you know, 10.8 million votes were cast in favor of the government's uh, arguments, compared with a law and justice vote of about 6.7 million. So there's about 3 million more voters out there who actually are conservative than voted for law and justice. And where are these uh, voters? And why were they not translating into votes for law and justice? So I think this is, this is an absolute crucial question because you, you know, on the basis of these statistics, you have a huge reservoir of potential conservative voters who are not voting for law and justice. And although uh, law and justice, I think over the last eight years, it's great achievement for Polish politics is in fact to entrench a singular, robustly conservative or centre-right or right-wing party, which had not happened prior to uh, law and justice coming into existence throughout the 90s and 2000s, effectively. Um, it was the liberal left who had the dominant political position in Poland. So, and, and certainly it's entrenched itself uh, as a singular institution. There is no alternative to law and justice going forward. And as I said, they brought, uh, they've legitimized these issues of migration, culture, national independence, very strongly, but it's clearly not enough. And I think this is the challenge that is going forward. And this is the where we can talk about the uh, the current president, President Duda, whose term of office concludes in the middle of 2025. And it's very clear that it is President Duda who is angling to uh, take law and justice forward after the retirement, which is inevitable at some point, of Yaroslav Kaczynski, the current uh, leader. And Duda and his allies, particularly his chief uh, advisor, Marcin Mastalerek, and one or two other people, are recognizing this potentiality. But they recognize that you need to have a much more modern, dynamic, youthful, uh, energetic law and justice stripped of some of the dead weight of the opportunists who have latched onto it over eight years and going back to some of the ideological roots, but with a much more modern campaigning and messaging approach. And they are actually optimistic that given the difficulties that the new government will face, that they will be in a very strong position uh, if they were to actually succeed in taking over the party in 2027 or before in making a, a quite a dramatic comeback, feeding on this huge reservoir of support, which people have not really noticed. It's uh, three million more votes in the referendum uh, that law and justice uh, achieved. So I think, um, you know, that, that's, 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 that's a key point to be making. Sorry, you had a, you had actually had a question which I didn't answer. So yeah. Well, we we can we can get back to the sort of the the, the standoff with with Brussels, but I think 
uh, uh, you know, especially sort of how the opposition is going to eventually going to be able to sort of mend fences with with the European Commission. But I want to, um, you know, speaking of the legacy of peace, uh, one of the one of the opposition one of the opposition's uh, uh, sort of campaign themes was also that the the government had uh, stacked the deck against. Uh, 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 the future opposition of any kind of any kind of opposition that would uh, potentially emerge after after it, um, and I want to ask you, David, starting with you, how easy will it be for 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 the opposition to roll back some of the policies you've just outlined in terms of the legacy? Because going into the election, there was a sense on the opposition that this was not going to be a free and fair election, uh, but not just a free and fair election. Uh, it, it wasn't going to be. Uh, free and fair the day after the election, right? There was the OSCE report, uh, speaking of undue influence over the use of state resources and the public media by by, by peace. Um, there's also been a whole lot of report uh, reporting on uh, on a conservative deep state, right? Allegedly, peace has been stacking um, government departments, uh, I mean, uh, uh, packing government departments, the civil service, state-controlled corporations, the central bank, the courts, regulators, the public media. How easy will it be for the opposition to roll back the policies of, of the peace government when they are going to be up against all of these um, holdouts from peace? Hi, Vlad. If you want to listen to uh, the answer to Jorge's question about the rule of law in Poland, but also we talk about the relationship between Poland and the EU going to the future, Poland's relationship with Ukraine given the stalemate at the moment. You'll have to join us on Patreon to get the entire episode, but also all of our previous episodes, their full version available if you join us on Patreon for just a few euros a month. Um, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll be seeing you in the Patreon section very soon. Well, I think we can wrap up here. Thank you so much, Marek. Thank you so much, David, for taking the time to walk us through um, a fascinating election and what it means on the state of Poland, the legacy of the peace and where Poland will be going forward. Um, thank you so much. And to our listeners, I say, see you in a second in the outro section. Thank you, David. Thank you, Marek. Thank you. Uh, Marek and David are out for what was a really interesting conversation on we call the episode New Poland but you know how does this change Poland after eight years of a peace government which was so central in Polish political life and now you get this new coalition um, to take over um, Jorge what do you think what do you make of this episode yes well I, I, it's, we were just discussing you know you know, uh, offline. I think uh, the 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 speaker mix was was particularly um, uh, complimentary in this occasion. Uh, we've had Marek Matrashek in the past. He's a he's a very clear mind. He's someone who comes from uh, sort of a conservative sensibility. He's uh, he's an he's an Oxbridge graduate. He uh, spent a lot of time dur during communism uh, working to. Uh, tr uh, to transmit uh, the sort of conservative thought, and the, particularly the, the thought of, of Roger Scruton into Central Europe. He was a sort of an, a conservative activist in the uh, in the underground. Um, but after having worked in the opposition uh, as an activist, he uh, he became. I mean, he. Uh, sort of went into the private sector and he's been working as a very, very successful consultant for, for, for years now. Yeah. And, um, and I think, as you said, he's someone who is uh, very, uh, he, he's someone who's able to, to sort of think against himself. 
and uh, and to think very clearly in a very sort of cool-headed manner about what's at stake, even though I think in his sort of political priors, this result in Poland was was very much a negative one. And on the other side, I think David is also a very interesting speaker. I've had the chance to come across David in several conferences and other uh, occasions. He's um, he's more of a culture, culture warrior. Uh, I mean, he's a very, very... Uh, notorious intellectual on the ride. He's very prolific. He's written a lot of very successful books. He speaks many different languages. Um, he tours Europe uh, the entire time, uh, uh, um, effectively. Uh, so they were two very different speakers who uh, had very different views on, on the matter. And I think that really enriched the episode. What I think we didn't discuss is that this result in Poland was also very underwhelming, I think, for the European right, uh, especially given that it was on it really was on a roll since September of last year when in Italy and Sweden there were elections that hoisted the right onto power. In, in Italy, it was obviously a right-wing coalition with a uh, conservative party on top. In Sweden, the conservative party didn't go into government, but it sort of supported a center-right coalition. Then there was Finland in April, and everyone was sort of hoping that Poland was going to be another vindication of that trend, even though obviously um, uh, there were some some headwinds against uh, peace. Uh, but people were hoping that since there was this European trend towards the right going into the European elections of June next year, that uh, Poland was gonna was gonna vindicate that. And so the result was was underwhelming. It doesn't necessarily change the overall trend. I think the the, the cautious expectation at this stage still is still that uh, that uh, that in June next year there will be a tilt of the European Parliament to the right that will force. Uh, the European People's Party to find coalitions and alliances with the parties to its right, as opposed to relying constantly on the left, the liberals and the greens and the the far left. Um, and I think the last point I wanted to touch upon, which would be, uh, I think, a good good chance to sort of pass you the baton, was that yeah. um, David really, really highlighted the fact that uh, what I mean, one of the one of the uh, deficiencies of the peace government, in his view, was that it, it didn't fight the cultural war as thoroughly as has been done by by Viktor Orban in Hungary, for instance. So he thinks that well, if, if the peace government had been projecting a more positive image of its policies to the conservative ecosystem across Europe, then maybe you would have had uh, you would have had more um, sort of. Um, you would have had a, a conservative block sort of cohering more solidly around the government. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a debatable point, but um, but I think that was one of the more interesting points that was made in the podcast. What about what, what were your thoughts? So I would uh, just on this point. Um, I think what David was saying is a little different. Um, it's that Hungary has also kind of thought about the kind of PR aspect of it. Um, social policies a lot better, and you know, doing a lot of outreach, creating institutions which will be pushing the the Hungarian uh, Fidesz's message across Europe in a way that Poland hasn't really mastered quite as well. Um, I wanted to talk about a few things um, which I thought was interesting. First of all, the referendum point was so interesting, and I think that's really something that I had not seen really covered. Um, I knew that whether referendum was being held simultaneously. I knew the idea was for the government to essentially get whip up support by having those referendums on issues which it thought it would be popular. Um, and I also knew the opposition called for a boycott of referendums because then it wouldn't reach the 50% threshold necessary for a referendum to have any impact. 
Um, but what I didn't realize actually is the point I'm making is if you if you tally up all the votes in favor of referendum, you get a level of support which is much stronger than the PIS uh, the peace um, supports. So that's been quite interesting to me in realizing that is actually the party is a lot stronger than a lot of the narrative has been saying. One thing, however, which I thought was interesting is if you look at the breakdown by age of supports for the main parties, what is quite interesting is the strongest support for the Peace Party is along those uh, who are, I think, 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus, all those kind of age um, categories. Among younger voters, you get uh, stronger support for um, a specific platform, but also stronger support for the far-right party, Confederencia, for left-wing parties. So essentially what you're seeing is among younger voters, the peace is kind of very much uh, an old-school party, which doesn't seem to represent their interests. Which leads me to this one point I, I was talking about on my, on my Twitter account the other day. Poland is actually a really good case study of something we're seeing among kind of Gen Z voters. There is an insane amount of gender polarization on politics, which has never seen be seen before. Historically, there was a conservative uh, bias among women. Women were more likely to vote conservative and has kind of been, been the case for basically all the 20th century in most countries. Uh, but what we're seeing nowadays is a liberal bias for women but the scope of that difference is huge. So essentially what you saw is the most popular party among 18 to 21 young men in a poor they run summer was a far-right Confederancia party. Now, that party has only got 7% of the vote since. When they were polling it, it was more like 11 12%. But essentially, three times as many young men, four times as many young men were supporting a far-right party than their counterparts, women, were at the same time. And women were three times more likely to vote for a left-wing party. And this is a trend you see in America, this is a trend you see, uh, maybe not so much in the UK, but in France, for example, where increasingly, not just on politics, but on issues like feminism, for example, you get a pretty stark divide along gender lines. And that's going to be really interesting. It's going to make our lives very complicated as well, because, you know, stuff like dating, for example, people increasingly become much more tribal in, in who they date and who they don't date, who they see and who they don't see. So all of a sudden you get... A uh, woman, you know, I'm I'm going to exaggerate here, but kind of woke women and base men. Um, that might mean we might not have many interactions in the years to come. So just a, maybe a side side point here uh, on the election, but something I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, great. Well, I think, um, you know, I think this was, uh, and again, I think Marek sort of walked us through the um, the procedural next steps before uh, cabinet this formed. Yeah. Uh, the parliament is going to be summoned into place on Monday. This episode yeah. will be published on Wednesday. Uh, and and then from then on, Morayevsky, who has been nominated to try and form a government, will have two weeks uh, to come up with one. And then uh, if he succeeds, which is very unlikely, almost impossible, Mar mm. Marek said, uh, then he will have another two weeks to um, to essentially come up with a program and hold a confidence vote in parliament, an investiture vote, as we call it in, in Spain. Um, since so this would be, sorry, since, go ahead. Since Moriavsky will very likely fail, that will trigger, that will kick off another countdown for Tusk to come up in another two weeks with a, with a cabinet, if that makes sense. And so what's going to be interesting is, so I think most people agree at this point, that is kind of a question of time before the opposition takes, takes over. Um, and it might be annoying. It might be complicated along the way, but in the end, they should be able to take over. What interests me is, to a large extent, um, the opposition ran on a kind of 
un- not a unified platform, the different parties were running. But there was a sense they were all running against the Peace Party and they were afraid that, you know, there would be too much political consolidation and so on. They were glued together, unified together by this common enemy, so to speak. With PIS no longer in power, it will be interesting to see how that coalition holds together because, as we said, it's a pretty wide tent. You're going from, you know, this the Tusk, who is a centre-right figure, um, to the, the left. So how do you manage to keep all these people in the same coalition in government for this long? I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to see how that works. And coalition government is is complicated as Spain has been experimented over the last few years. So I'll be very interested to see how Poland manages to, to handle such a large coalition in the years to come. Yeah. Okay, and it's a wrap. Once again, our apologies for our belated start this season. We're all dealing with a lot of uh, professional and personal developments in our lives. So there'll be a few changes on on this uh, podcast in the weeks to come. But don't worry, we will still be kicking. If you want to listen to the full version of this podcast, you can go on our Patreon account where it's available. And if you want to support the podcast, feel free, sorry, feel free to share it on social media, like it on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, whatever platform you use. Uh, we really appreciate the support and we're so, so, so happy to be back 